tools for living, room to grow, a space of grace to become everything God wants us to be. You're listening to The Living Room Podcast with Joanna Weaver, episode 128. Do you have a spiritual mentor, someone who's encouraged you in your walk with God? Well, Oswald Chambers has been a spiritual mentor to me, and though he died back in the 1930s, his words in the classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, have had an incredible impact on my life. But did you know that that book might not have ever been published had it not been for a very special person? And you're going to meet her, well, kind of meet her, in this episode of The Living Room Podcast. Well, you guys know that Oswald Chambers and My Utmost for His Highest is my all-time favorite devotional. Oswald has been a spiritual mentor and actually a dear friend. I call him my dear Oswald. And um, so I'm super excited to introduce you to the story behind this incredible devotional that has never been out of print, sold over at least 15 million copies, has influenced people's lives for decades and even coming on a century. But there's a little known story behind the story that we're going to explore today with a a dear friend, Michelle Yuli, who has written a biography of Mrs. Oswald Chambers. Welcome to the living room again, Michelle. So glad to have you with us. Delighted to be here in 2024. Yay. You know, it's a new year. Yes. And we've, I've started our chapter a day Bible reading. And this year we have added my utmost to our reading schedule. And so I was really excited to talk to you about the story behind this devotional because really for all intents and purposes, when you look at the incredible life of Oswald Chambers, Really, it it shouldn't have had the impact it did. Will you tell us a little bit about Oswald and just a brief kind of overview of his life? Well, he was born in Scotland in 1870, and he grew up in Scotland. And then as a teenager, his family moved to London. His father was a Baptist preacher, and both his father and his mother were baptized by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. When Oswald, or in our household, we call him O.C., was 15, he went to a service with his father, and as they walked away from the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said to his father, whoa, if Charles Spurgeon was here, I'd give my life to Christ right now. And his dad, Clarence Chambers, said, well, you can do it right here with me. And that's where he became, he gave his heart to Jesus there as a teenager, 1885 in London. He grew up, went to um, Bible school in Denoon, Scotland. Um, he wanted to be an artist and he had thought, you know, good talent in arts, but he couldn't make a career of it. He also was a fine uh, pianist or organist. He was very much interested in the arts and saw his life as the being one of connecting Christianity with the arts and the artists. He had a dark night of the soul there while he was teaching at the Bible College in Danoon. And the Holy Spirit finally came on him in early 1900. And once more, his life changed. He became a speaker, a well-known speaker with the um, Prayer League of of Britain, and then was put on their speaking circuit. He uh, traveled all over the country speaking about gospel topics. He um, loved to talk about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He had a whole list of things he talked about. In 1906, he met Juji Nakaba, who was a Japanese evangelist with the Oriental Missionary Society, Juju was very short and stout, 
Bosi was very tall and thin. Nakata convinced him to come with him to America, see what it was like there, and then go on to Japan to visit um, the Bible College that was in Tokyo, founded by Nakata and Charles and Letty Kalman. Uh, he went there and was really impressed by the work that they were doing to train the Japanese people to be missionaries in their own country. And when he rode around the horn back to England with Charles and Letty Kalman, who were coming on a deputation trip to England, he resolved that he would put together a Bible training college of his own that would prepare missionaries for the mission field. And ultimately, that's what he did. Um, in 1908, he returned to the United States to speak at camp meetings up and down the seaboard, and eastern seaboard. And on that trip, he looked in on the daughter of a church friend of his, his brother was also a pastor, one of his brother's church member's daughter, um, Gertrude Annie Hobbs, and uh, fell in love. Uh, Gert, Gert, as they called her at that time, was a fine stenographer. And right away, O.C. was invigorated at the idea of the two of them going together, her taking down everything he said and turning it into books and magazine articles. He had a problem, though, on that trip across, that 10-day crossing, and that is that his favorite sister's name was Gertrude. And here he was dealing with a pretty vivacious young woman whose name was also Gertrude. And he was getting a little mixed up in his mind. So he decided, as was his wont, to give her a, um, a nickname. And the best one he came up with was Beloved Disciple. Well, that's a pretty heady nickname. And it's a pretty big word to say if you're suggesting a stroll on the promenade or come to tea. So he shortened it to her initials, B-D, which then morphed into Biddy. And that's why she was always called Biddy after that, including her family. They called her Biddy. So um, Biddy and Oswald got married in 1910 and returned to the United States under the camp meeting. And in 1911, they established the Bible Training College in London. Uh, Biddy was the lady superintendent. She managed the business. She was a business person. And O.C. did all the teaching. He was the uh, superintendent. He was the administrator. And he was the counselor. They both prayed with the students. And that school went on until... Um, the end of the school year in June 1915. It's important to note that in August of 1914, World War I began. Uh, they were in London. They were seeing soldiers. They were dealing with uh, Zeppelins in the sky, bombing, dropping bombs in London. And some of their students, a number of their students, joined the Young Men's Christian Association, YMCA is how we know it, and went overseas. The YMCA during World War I is basically the USO. They established places for servicemen to go and rest and relax in their off hours, fed them donuts and so on. Well, O.C. labored over this for quite some time. He was really on the cusp of being too old to go. It was sort of his call. He had a two-year-old. He had a wife. He had a school. But after much prayer, he determined he needed to go with the YMCA and serve the soldiers. And he went to Zaitun, Egypt, which is just north of Cairo. And it was the home base of the um, Australian, the ANZAC, Australian New Zealand Second Horse Brigade. Um, he was out in the desert living in a tent next to the camp, which included horses and all those ruffians from down under. However, O.C. was a man who paid attention to what the Holy Spirit was saying. And he asked if he could bring his wife and his child. At that time in Cairo, there were, I think, 18 YMCA superintendents, they were called. No one had a wife. 
with them except the head guy, and no one had any kids at all. So it was a bit of an audacious ask, but there it went. And they said, if she can support herself, you pay her way. Sure, she can come. They can come, but you know we can't support that. So friends raised enough funds for Biddy and Kathleen, who was two, and then their good friend Mary Riley, who was the cook at the Bible Training College, to come to Cairo in the middle of a war. And they he built a mud hut for her right there in the desert and prepared it for as best he could. I am, am a military wife. Um, I was invited to meet my husband overseas one time in Barbados with my four-month-old and my two-year-old. And as I was going out the door to buy my ticket, I happened to see on the news that the Americans had invaded Grenada. Now, in those years, you had to see, use an atlas to figure out where Grenada was, which was the next island over from Barbados. So I chose not to take two small children to a war zone on an airplane in a time of immunizations and clean water and easy travel. Biddy got on a steamship with her two-year-old and a friend. They rowed out the channel where two ships had been sunk by U-boats the day before, down the coast of France made a left turn at the Straits of Gibraltar in the dark with everything light dark at night because U-boats sat on either side of the Straits of Gibraltar ready to shoot anybody down. They passed two boats that had been sunk by German U-boats and into Port Said, a land before immunizations, a land of bad water, a land of, of um, insects um, and heat. And she set up camp in a mud hut. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. And yet that really fit with how their life was because they were really a team in ministry, weren't they? Amen, they totally, totally were, yeah. And what a great sport Biddy was. I mean, all the pictures we have of Kathleen there in Egypt, she's always wearing an immaculate white dress with a big white bow in her hair. And I'm like, I can't even do that in modern laundry. (laughs) How could she manage that? What, a hundred and some odd years ago? But yeah, they totally were. And Kathleen was so important for that ministry. Think about who was there in the Zaytun camp. It was all the Anzac soldiers from Australia and New Zealand who hadn't seen their families or their children in a year, two years. And yet there was even a greater spiritual work that was being done. Tell us about that. Tell us and tell us how Biddy fit into all of that. Well, she sat in the back of every class that Oswald Chambers taught, and she took down everything he said in shorthand. Um, she uh, you know, did all the correspondence. Um, she and Mary Riley helped put together teas. She functioned really as a secretary and as his encourager. She was very good in teaching on prayer, if need be, and she listened to people. She was very good about just sitting and listening and drinking a cup of tea and think of how many lonely soldiers there would have been there in 1914, 15, 16, 17, 18, Egypt. It was a pivotal time for a lot of people. It totally was. And um, they believed, Biddy and Oswald, that this was a singular moment in time. These soldiers' lives teetered on eternity. They were either going to go up the line to Jerusalem, which was expected to be a long and bloody battle, or they were going overseas to France, into the trenches of France. They knew that for many men, this was it. They needed to meet their God now because there wasn't going to be another chance. More than one soldier said, it was almost worth coming to war, if only to hear Oswald Chambers teach me and lead me into relationship with Jesus. Now, who can get a better accolade than that? 
1917, the British um, expeditionary forces knew that they had to go up the line to Jerusalem to attack the Ottoman Turks to take Jerusalem. It was the southeastern corner of the entire World War I theater. They were expecting a very bad battle. And so as they prepared for the men to go, they assigned a YMCA secretary to each unit that was going up the line, and that included Oswald Chambers. He was ready to go. He bought his kit. He was preparing. And in preparation to go, he trained Biddy to take over his role in the camp. He prepared her for when he wasn't going to be there. And that, of course, became extremely significant. The plan was that while Oswald was gone, she would run the camp. She would lead the discipleship discussions, the Bible studies, and it would be based out of his own reading. She would read some of his sermons, but the camp would continue. She was prepared. She was ready. They arranged for that. But as they came near the fall kickoff, um, Oswald Chambers got ill. He um, complained of a mummy tummy, kind of like a Montezuma's revenge. Everybody had it. And he didn't want to go to a hospital because he didn't want to take a bed from a soldier. So he kind of just managed it for, I think, almost a week, maybe even 10 days before it got so bad he had to go. They took him over to the British Naval Expeditionary Forces Hospital, which is at Mina Camp, right at the base of the pyramids. There's a hotel there now, but it was the hospital then. And uh, they discovered his appendix had burst. So they did immediate, immediate surgery. Um, they declared the surgery was fine, but he wasn't recuperating very well. It turned into a, cul a pulmonary clotting experience, and he ultimately died of a blood clot on uh, November 15, 1917. No one, no one could believe that would happen. Why would God take Oswald Chambers at the peak of his teaching? They had held a prayer meeting the night before. Everyone was anticipating good news, but it came back bad. He was held in such high regard by the forces, the British army there, in, and well, the Anzac army really there in Cairo, that they held his funeral for a day. Usually you were buried on the very day because of the conditions, it was hot and so forth. But they held it for a day and they gave him a, a, a magnificent funeral um, as befitting a military officer in the British army. They picked up his body there at Mina Camp on a caisson with a British flag over it. He had soldiers marching beside him all the way across the river, the Nile River, into downtown Cairo, and they buried him with full honors at the old Cairo Cemetery. You can visit his grave there even today. Uh, someone went oh, a couple of years ago and left flowers on his grave for her and honored him with my name on the card. Lovely, lovely thing to do. And he sits there where he wants, he lies there where he wanted to be, which was among the soldiers that he loved so very, very much. It was hard for me. It was hard for Kathleen. I mean, he left behind a widow with a small child, four, with no insurance, no money, in the middle of a camp during a world war. Um, people rallied, and then the YMCA asked Biddy to stay on and run the camp for the duration of the war, which is what she did. It was at that time she got so many condolence letters that she wasn't sure how to answer them all. They were very meticulous about their correspondence. And one of the other secretaries, their good friend, um, came and suggested that uh, Jimmy Hansen, that Biddy just take excerpts from things he had written and send those off. Thank you. Here's a final word from Oswald, which is what she did. One month, two months, 
agreements. And finally, she got such a great reception from them that the YMCA just said, look, we'll pay for it. You send one every month to all the theaters of war, to all the YMCA camps. And by 1918, when the war ended, she was sending these missives to 10,000 a, a month. She was sending out newsletters, basically, including a teaching of Oswald Chambers, which is why she knew his words were important and they were meaningful. Wow. Wow. You know, you think of her availability just to, to capture the words, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because had she not been there using the gifts that she had, we would not have those words. What do you think it is about that devotional that has given it such an enduring and endearing, lasting influence? There are a number of reasons. One is the way the book was put together, the devotional was put together, O.C. wrote in the immediate, and he didn't put things in to his writing that um, dated it. He didn't make reference to the clopping hooves of the horses going down the street or or whatever. He, he used universal themes. It all came right out of scripture. Um, uh, in the case of Miamis for his highest, the authors of the guide to reading the book, the Makoskas, believe it's because he Biddy combed through all of his writings and chose the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Um, so um, it has the benefit of having an excellent compiler editor in his wife, Biddy Chambers. It also speaks to universal truth. It doesn't um, mince words. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like he's just nailing me to the wall. Oh, thanks. Oh, see, that's just really great. I can hardly wait to get started on that. And as we're recording this now, early in, in you know, January of 2024, the first two days are already hit me. I mean, they affected how I was looking at things in my life. And I've been reading this devotional for 25 years. So it's timeless. It never really ends. And it waits. It, it's, it's, it doesn't really wait. It's not like scripture that doesn't return void, but it's an amplification of scripture and an explanation of scripture that relies simply on the Holy Spirit. And it's words. Uh, you are paying attention here. This does apply to you, Michelle. I don't know if it applies to the rest of you. It sure does apply to me. And um, I think that's what some of the um, historicity of it, it just stays on forever because it's universal. Oh, I totally agree. And I'm right there with you. I mean, you would think after spending, I, I've probably off and on and mostly on spent the last 40 years reading Oswald. And um, I'm always just amazed at how the Holy Spirit, and I think that that's the key for me, is that that the Holy Spirit, there's just a sweet anointing on this book that um, so often it will coincide with the situation in my life that Oswald knew nothing about, but the Holy Spirit sure did. And that's what's so exciting to me um, about finding these kind of books that just have such rich truth. And I like what you say, don't mince words. They just lay it out there uh, in such powerful truth. And yet it's so amazing to me that, that this all of this teaching could have passed into obscurity had it not been for Biddy for his dear wife. Coming back to the story, Oswald has passed away in Egypt. Biddy has remained faithful, but here she is still with a little child. Tell us what happened next. One of the interesting things about his death was um, after the after it was all over, Biddy had to go back to Zaytun and tell her daughter, her four-year-old, that her dearly loved father was gone. And she came in and just said, well, daddy's gone to be with Jesus. 
And I said, okay, this is a four-year-old who looked at him and said, well, that's good news, right? That's good. He's with Jesus. And um, Kathleen later said that was the only time she ever saw her mother cry, was that one moment telling her that her husband was gone, her father was gone, and um, she wouldn't see him again. Interesting uh, and so poignant, um, but that was it. And Kathleen later said that it was almost like he had never really left. She said even growing up, her mom would be working with her notes and so forth. And she'd reference her father, Kathleen's father, as if he just stepped into the next room. Uh, Kathleen said, I never really felt like he was very far away, though I really didn't know him and I have no memories of him. But she was always in the present tense talking about Oswald Chambers. Well, why wouldn't she be? She was in the present tense whenever she was in her notes. She put together ultimately 39 books with Oswald Chambers' name on the cover, all gleaned from his writing. Phenomenal event. Um, In the case of my utmost far as highest, you could almost see her in the basement where she worked at the boarding house she ran to support her and her daughter. And you could almost picture her going through these sandy pages from Egypt and thinking, all right, this was a good one. I'll use this one here. I'll use that. There are some thematic structures that go through the book, but she doesn't usually attach a date to anything. I mean, I have friends who write devotionals and there's always a Valentine's Day one on February 14th. There's always a Thanksgiving or whatever it is, but she didn't do that. She just pulled whatever her thematic was for that maybe week or a couple of days. And then she found the writings. You could almost see, she could hear him saying these things. Where was that at the BTC or was that in London or was that in Zytune or maybe that was somewhere else. And she'd pull it up and put it together, framing it, compiling it, finding the right one, but then editing it into a complete whole. Sometimes the readings from my utmost, she'll have pulled from three or four different conversations that she took down. She was putting, this is why she's a fantastic compiler, she was putting together these complex ideas into one whole. She titled it, she chose the verse, generally speaking, though the verse often was OC, you know, talking about that verse. It's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting for me to look through. It was only when I was writing the book that I realized, because I wondered, what did she put on the day that Oswald Chambers died? What's her name reading? And it talks about what happens when a hero on whom you put your faith dies. What do you do? which is like the only personal comment she made about his death. But in the page to November 16th, the next day, it starts something along the lines of still, well, still here. I'm still human. So she titles it because she still had emotions about losing her husband, but she stayed the course of what God had given her to do. Yeah. It's remarkable. It's remarkable because I think sometimes, we, especially in our 21st century American Christianity, we really expect that if we do God's will, then everything should go well. And here she is. She's given her life for the ministry. She's gone to a foreign country. And I think, I think we really like just even putting ourselves in her shoes, not only going through some real hardship living in Egypt, but then to have your husband die and everything ripped away. And like you mentioned, like no pension, there there was nothing supporting her. All of a sudden, this woman who'd been dearly loved, treasured, the beloved disciple is alone with a little girl. And yet rather than sinking into despair or just getting angry at God and saying, I, 
I want nothing to do with you. Instead, she just did what she could. And, and we are the richer for it. Um, wow. What did you discover about Biddy as a person during the writing of this book? Well, actually, I wrote um, Mrs. Oswald Chamber as after I wrote a novel in which Biddy and Oswald are characters. And I ended up writing the biography because Biddy kept taking over the novel. I mean, she's, she was a strong character, but, but quiet. I mean, she wasn't banging a drum or anything. She was just subtly in the background watching and then would come up with a, a, almost a, a, a quiet remark. For example, if you would come to her with a prayer request, she was always big. She would always drop everything she was doing for a prayer request. If you came to her wanting prayer later in her life, if you rang her doorbell with a prayer request, she'd invite you back into the kitchen and she'd pour you a cup of tea and she'd make, provide some cakes that she'd made and she'd listen to people pour out their problems. And when they would finish, she would say, we give this to you, Lord. Amen. And they would be like, that's it? That's the whole prayer? Wait a minute. And she's like, you just explained it all. There's no reason for me to, you know, tell God what you said. So we'll give it to you, Lord. Amen. And sometimes I do that myself now. And she was matter of fact. She was practical. Um, but she had an open hand and an open heart for people uh, later in, in her life when she lived in London. It was open house all the time. When her daughter was a young woman during World War II, she could bring her friends over all the time. Got Catherine complained. I think my friends liked my mother more than me. She had a mischievous streak to her, um, humorous. I mean, she she uh, she would laugh. Um, there's a story from World War II where she had some American GIs in her house, and they were having kind of a stuffy conversation around the dinner table. She was serving cherries, and she said, "See that." vase there on the mantle and they all kind of looked at it and she said and they said well yeah she said let's see who can spit a cherry seed closer to it which you know starts a riotous party all of the american gis suddenly relaxed kathleen and her friends who are also there are relaxing and it becomes a jolly evening rather than we're sitting here with mrs oswald i love that i love that you know i, I think the thing that struck me most um and you can correct me if I don't remember this right, but as a young woman, like you said, she learned in her sick bed, she learned stenography, but she had a secret dream, wasn't it, that she would be the stenographer to the P British prime minister? Like she had lofty goals. And I, it just makes me think about how so often those things, those desires, those passions, those things that we have affinity for, that when we put them in the Lord's hands, you know, oh my goodness, she was, she was a stenographer for the prime, 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 prime minister of all times, Jesus Christ himself through Oswald and her, his teaching. Oh my goodness. That's so powerful. What do you think it was about? Um, because it had to take some tenacity, especially back then. You've got a young child. You don't have the money to self-publish, but you have this passion and this desire. Um, what do you think it was that just kept driving her to, to take these messages and all these books and do something with them? Well, I have this pretty old version of my atmosphere's highest, and it has um, a forward in it by Biddy, though she doesn't say Biddy Chambers, she calls herself BC. She never referred to herself as anybody. She was, 
Yeah, I mean, it was the, all the books had Oswald Chambers' name on them. None of them had her as a reference. But she says that um, she quotes Robert Murray McChain, who was a, a Scottish uh, preacher about that time, that says, men return again and again to the few who have mastered the spiritual secret, whose life have been has been hid with Christ and God. These are the old time religion hung to the nails of the cross. To which Biddy adds, it is because it is felt that the author is one to whose teaching men will return, that this book has been prepared. And it is sent out with the prayer that day by day the messages may continue to bring the quickening life and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She was really careful about the Holy Spirit, even then in 1920, well, 27, when she published uh, My Almost First Highest. But she was offered a position when she returned from um, Zaytun, from Egypt, um, in a boarding school for women missionaries, run and organized by the same group who had run the Bible training college, which they had closed during the war when Oswald left for Egypt. Osi had planned that at the end of the war, he and Biddy would travel the world and serve as um, encouragers for missionaries, continuing education for missionaries. They would visit mission stations and encourage them. They were focused on spreading the good news. So, but he also was concerned about her as a mother to her child. While they were at the Bible training college, even as Kathleen was a baby, he had said, don't let the women students take over your child. You need to raise our child. You need to be your mother first. So when she came back after the war and she was offered this position, basically running the school for women missionaries, exactly the job she'd had before the war, she, w- she was weighing that. Did she want to do that? Or did she want to work on the books? And then she said, well, you know, I do have Kathleen, who was five at the time. And they said, oh, no, no, no worries at all. We'll get her a nanny. And that was the click because she knew she needed to raise her daughter, not on a nanny. And she said, thank you very much, but I think I need to do something else. And that was put together in books. Um, she never spent, she always turned the money she earned on the books into the next book. She lived in limited circumstances on the gifts of friends. Um, and then, of course, in 1925-ish, she had an opportunity to run a boarding school or boarding house in Oxford, England for some Oxford students. And she felt that would enable her to make something of a living, have a house to stay in. And she could put the books together when she was done with her housekeeping, which mothers do we put our <laughs> I never yeah she'd get up early she'd brew the tea and slice the sand yeah she'd just do all these things and when everyone was gone and that included riding bike to school with Kathleen who couldn't get off her bike properly um you know do all of her shopping on bicycle because she had no car she'd come home and prepare the meal and then she would go downstairs and rifle through all of her notes she had a trunk full of notes of all of everything she had taken down that Oswald said and out of that trunk of notebooks she put together, as I said, 39 different books. Oh my goodness. Okay. I just have to say as an author, and since you're an author too, that's deeply convicting. (laughs) (laughs) No, she didn't have the internet. She wasn't distracted. (laughs) Oh, you know, don't you think though, I need a perfect window of time and the perfect, you know, and she just did it. She didn't do it, Joanna, do it. I love it. She was also on the circuit. She would ride out and, and preach at Methodist churches in the countryside outside of Oxford on Sundays. That was her and Kathleen's entertainment, I guess you could say. Wow. 
So my utmost for his highest comes out. Um, did it begin to sell immediately or was that a slower process? It did well from the start and it made enough money that after a couple of years, she was able to close down the boarding house and she moved to Muswell Hill, which is a northern suburb of London, in with her mother and continued to put together books. But there was a little more leeway, at least in terms of producing the books. Um, again, she, and she was living with her mother. So between the two, she was able to hobble together, cobble together a life that worked well for her. In 19, shortly thereafter, the Oswald Chambers Publication Association was formed. They began to insist that she get some pay for the work she did. I mean, she was actually working to put together the books. The workman is worthy of her hire. Um, and she kept demurring and they said, well, look, we're going to give, you're always having people drop by for tea. We're going to give you a, an allowance then for entertainment, which she promptly spent immediately on other people. She just didn't have a sense that she needed to make money out of books. And um, she got a little bit of a stipend then from the OCPA, but pretty much all of that money just resolved, revolved right back into the next book. So beautiful. Just, it's amazing what God can do with our obedience and, and just being faithful to what we sense him saying to our hearts and put it on paper and put it out there for the world or whatever it is that the Lord's speaking to your heart. You know, I'm sure there's some listeners out there thinking, so why would have the Lord allow this man to die at 41? I know I, I would think myself, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish he would have lived longer and written more books. But, um, you know, when you and I were talking about this earlier, you you made a comment that really kind of helped me with that. Yeah. Um, one of the most read blog posts on my website is, why did God let Oswald Chambers die so young? Um, and it's, it's an excellent question. I wrestled with it for quite a while myself. But if Oswald had not died, we would not have the books. He and Biddy had to travel the world and visit missionaries and, again, run a continuing education program. But with his death, she turned all of his words into books that have stood the test of time. We're at, what, 90, well, no, 97. Anyway, 2027 will be 100 years. We're nearly 100 years into this. First Highest was smuggled behind the Iron Curtain by Brother Andrew. It's been all over the world ministering to people wherever they are. And there would be no books. And even their good friend, um, Pulford, commented the same thing, that she devoted herself to putting those words into print so that we could have them. And he said, you know, that's what God did with his servant. And then she used the, her, the servant's death to promote the kingdom of God. It reminds me of that verse where Jesus said, you know, unless you're willing to fall into the earth and die, you abide alone. And, you know, sometimes I think we all, we're so busy thinking of best case scenario. And when the worst happens, we think all is lost, not knowing that that is the actual seed for God's full purposes. And, you know, there were, that wasn't the only obstacle that Biddy faced, though. Talk about the what happened to the books? Well, during World War II or just prior, all of the book distributors of London were stationed at, were stored in warehouses surrounding St. Paul's Cathedral. It's got that point up to the sky towards God, and it sits on the highest part of London and was a beacon 
to the Nazi jets, or not, I guess they went to jets, Nazi planes that came to bomb during the Blitz. And on one terrible night in December of 1940, they bombed it like mad. Now, the, the cathedral of St. Paul's Cathedral had fire watchers. If you go visit the, the church now, they'll take you up and show you where the fire watchers sat. They were ready to put out fires. They, they didn't destroy St. Paul's. It never caught on fire or the fire watchers took care of it. But the bombs landed on all of those booksellers of London and everything went up in smoke, um, including all of the published books of Oswald Chambers that were in the warehouses. Prior to this, the Oswald Chambers Publication Association Committee had met to discuss whether they should take out insurance on the books. And Biddy's attitude was always, if God wants the books to go on, they'll go on. If he doesn't, then we'll just go do something else. So all of the books were gone. The start of the war, they had no insurance on it. It looked grim. They had a pretty grim meeting there the following month. And they determined, well, let's just see what we've got. And over here were some printing plates. Somebody had a bunch of books in their office. Somebody had the books here, someone there. Anyway, by the end of the war, they had almost everything back into stock and selling. But it came very close to being the end of all of Oswald Schaefer's books. And Biddy was like, then we'll do something else. So she was nonplussed by that type of a thing. She just handled every hand, well, held everything very loosely in her hand and was ready to let it go. And, you know, that's out of my atmosphere's highest. He ta OC talks about, we can't clutch on to a ministry we think God has given to us and hold it so long that it strangles and dies. Those weren't his words, but we need to be able to let it go if it's, if it's fading away. And we have thought about, my husband and I have several different times in our lives. Well, if this is the end of this era, we'll just move on to the next one, not fighting with God or complaining. And uh, so far we're still here and those concepts still live on. Powerful. So, so powerful. Well, I know there are a lot of people out there listening who, who maybe have had the frustrations of their dreams. You know, um, a loved one passed and it just doesn't make sense or uh, something that they were doing for the Lord that they thought would have great success and yet burn up and feel like what a waste and are probably really discouraged today. And I, I just think that's such a beautiful reminder that if we'll just put it in the Lord's hands, you know, just let him have it. And and like you mentioned that final, the final uh, entry from December 1st, let the past rest on the bosom of Christ and step out into that irresistible future because the end of the story has not yet been written, my friend, but we got to put our story in his hands. So thank you so much for sharing this. This has been so rich. I would just, um, I would just love to have you pray over us as we close. Um, Father God, we thank you for the lives of Biddy and Oswald Chambers. We thank you, Father, that these two servants provided, a, provided us with so much meat and thoughts and ideas about you that are so rich and affect our lives a hundred years later. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move among all readers of my utmost verse highest, pointing them to the God who created them, who loves them, and who will be with them to the end of the age. Amen, amen. Amen. Wow, you guys, I am so blown away by the story of Biddy's faithfulness. Perhaps your life has been derailed by tragedy, 
Perhaps you find yourself questioning why God allowed it to go down like it did. But I hope you'll remember how God redeemed all of Biddy's pain and actually used it as she simply did what she could with what God gave her. Do you have a friend who might need to hear this message as well? Well, you can click on the three dots that you find on most podcast players and text the link to this interview or even post it on social media. And if you'd like to learn more about Biddy, as well as Michelle's other biography about Letty B. Cowman, you can find links to it all in the show notes. And hey, if you're interested in starting to read My Utmost for Us Highest or joining the Bible Reading Challenge that features a daily entry as well as a chapter a day in the Bible, you can learn more about it at joannaweaverbooks.com forward slash My Utmost 2024. Well, until next time, my friend, I hope you were encouraged by today's podcast. Just keep pressing close to Jesus. Give Him your grief and allow Him to heal your pain. Be willing and available to do whatever He asks, and then trust Him with the outcome, because that's how we learn to live and love and lead like Him. See you next time.